All right. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at the rise of an urban order. So focusing a little more on cities specifically. So let's dive in here. So during the 50 years after the Civil War, the population of the United States tripled from about 31 million to 92 million. So yet the number of Americans living in cities increased nearly sevenfold. By 1910, nearly half the nation lived in cities large and small. Cities grew in every region of the country, in the Northeast and Upper Midwest. Early industrialization created more cities than in the West and the South, although a few big cities sprouted there as well. Atlanta, Nashville, and later Dallas and Houston boomed under the influence of railroads. So by 1900, Los Angeles, with its 100,000 residents, was second only to San Francisco on the West Coast. Large urban centers dominated whole regions, tying the country together in a vast urban network. New York, the nation's banker, printer, and chief marketplace, ruled the East. Smaller cities operated within narrow spheres of influence and often specialized. Milwaukee was famous for beer, Tulsa for oil, and Hershey, Pennsylvania for chocolate. So such specialization prevented competition between cities in the same region. So cities shaped the natural environment hundreds of miles beyond their limits. Chicago, gateway to the West, became a powerful agent of ecological ecological, <laughs> sorry, change. As its lines of commerce and industry radiated outward, we're going to see the city transform the rich ecosystems of the West. Wheat to feed Chicago's millions replaced sheltering prairie grasses. Great stands of white pine in Wisconsin vanished, only to reappear in the furniture and frames of Chicago houses or as fence rails shipped to prairie farms. So between 1820 and 1920, some 60 million people all across the globe left farms and villages for cities. Beginning in the 1870s, new ocean-going steam-powered ships extended the reach of migrating laborers across continents and created a labor exchange that spanned the globe. In Europe, mushrooming populations gave immigrants a powerful push-out while machinery cut the need for farm workers. Surplus farm workers became part of a vast international labor force pulled by industry to cities in Europe and America. The prospect of factory work for better pay and fewer hours especially lured the young. In the United States, young farm women spearheaded the urban migration. Mechanization and the rise of commercial agriculture made them less valuable in the fields. Mass-produced goods from mail-order houses made them less useful at home. Asia sent comparatively fewer newcomers to the United States, Canada, and other industrializing nations hungry for workers. Still, Asian immigrants followed migration patterns similar to those of workers leaving Europe and for similar reasons. Between 1850 and 1882, rising taxes and rents on land and declining markets drove some 370,000 Chinese across the Pacific to the United States. Nearly 400,000 Japanese arrived between 1885 and 1924. Immigration from Europe dwarfed all others as new regions of the continent contributed growing numbers. Early in the century, most European immigrants had come from northern and western Europe. In the 1880s, however, new immigrants from southern and eastern Europe began to arrive. Some, like Russian and Polish Jews, were fleeing religious and political persecution. 
others left to evade famine and diseases such as cholera, which swept across southern Italy in 1887. But most came for the same reasons that had motivated migrants from the countryside. A job, more money, a fresh start. Ambitious, hardy, and resourceful, immigrants found themselves tested every step of the way to America. It took one to two weeks to cross the Atlantic. Immigrants spent most of the time below decks in cramped, filthy compartments called steerage. Most landed at New York's Castle Garden or the newer facility on nearby Ellis Island, opened in 1892. If arriving from Asia, they landed at Angel Island in San Francisco Bay. They had to pass a medical examination, have their names recorded by customs officials, and pay an entry tax. At any point, they could be detained or shipped home. Most newcomers were young, between the ages of 15 and 40. Few spoke English or had skills or much education. Unlike earlier arrivals, new immigrants or earlier arrivals were mostly Protestant, but these new immigrants, they worshipped in Catholic, Greek, or Russian Orthodox churches and Jewish synagogues. Almost two-thirds were men. A large number came to make money to buy land or start a business back home. Some changed their minds and sent for relatives, but those returning home were common enough to be labeled birds of passage. Still, by 1900, some 30 million immigrants had arrived, and they make up nearly 15% of the population. So what's going to kind of hold the city together? So back in colonial days, Benjamin Franklin, he could walk from one end of Boston to the other in an hour. Only Franklin's adopted home, Philadelphia, spilled into suburbs. Over the years, these colonial walking cities developed ringed patterns of settlement. Merchants, professionals, and the upper classes lived near their shops and offices in the city center. As one walked outward, the income and status of the residents declined. Cities of the late 19th century still exhibited this ringed pattern, except that industrialization had reversed the order and increased urban sprawl. So the wealthy now lived at the outskirts of the city and the poor and working poor at the industrial center. So for all their differences, the circles of settlement held together as a part of an interdependent whole. One reason was an evolving system of urban transportation. By the mid-19th century, horse-drawn railways were conveying some 35 million people a year in New York. Their problems were legendary. So slow, a person could walk faster. So crowded, according to Mark Twain, you had to hang on by your eyelashes and your toenails. So dirty, tons of horse manure were left daily in the streets. Civic leaders came to understand that the modern city could not survive, much less grow, without improved transportation. San Francisco installed trolley carts pulled by steam-driven cables. The innovation worked so well in hilly San Francisco that Chicago, Seattle, and other cities installed cable systems in the 1880s. Some cities experimented with elevated trestles to carry steam locomotives or cable lines high above crowded streets. But none of the breakthroughs did quite the trick. Cables remained slow and unreliable. The elevated railways, or L's, were dirty, ugly, and noisy. Electricity rescued city travelers. In 1888, Frank Julian Sprague, a naval engineer who had once worked for Thomas Edison, installed the first electric trolley line in Richmond, Virginia. Electrified streetcars were soon speeding along at 12 miles an hour, twice as fast as horses, by 1902, electricity drove nearly all city railways. Sprague's breakthroughs also meant that subways could be built beneath ground without worrying about tunnels filling with a steam engine smoke and soot. Boston built the first underground electric line between 1895 and 1897. New York followed in 1904 with 
the subway from the southern tip of Manhattan north to Harlem. The rich had long been able to keep homes outside city limits traveling in private carriages. New systems of mass transit freed the middle class and even the poor to live miles from work. For a nickel or two, anyone could ride from central shopping and business districts to the suburban fringes and back. A network of moving vehicles held the segmented and sprawling city together and widened its reach out to streetcar suburbs. And since cities often grew along rivers and harbors, their separate parts sometimes had to be joined over water. The principles of building large river bridges had already been worked out by the railroads. It remained for a German immigrant, John Roebling, and his son, Washington, to make the bridge a symbol of urban growth. Their creation, the legendary Brooklyn Bridge, linking Manhattan with Brooklyn, took 13 years to complete, cost $15 million and 20 lives, even killing the designer, John. When it opened in 1883, it stretched more than a mile across the East River in New York with passage broad enough for a footpath, two double carriage lanes, and two railroad lines. Its archers were cut like giant cathedral windows, and its supporting cables hung like divine messages from above, said an awestruck observer. Soon other suspension bridges were spanning the railroad yards in St. Louis and even the bay at Galveston, Texas. Even as late as 1880, church steeples towered over squat factories and office buildings. But growing congestion and the increasing value of land challenged architects to search for ways to make buildings taller. Thin air became valuable real estate. In place of thick, heavy walls of brick that restricted factory floor space, builders used cast iron columns. These new cloud scrapers were strong, durable, and fire resistant, ideal for warehouses and also for office buildings and department stores. Steel, with greater flexibility and strength than iron, turned cloud scrapers into skyscrapers. William LeBaron Jenny first used steel in his 10-story home life insurance building, 1885, in Chicago. By the end of the century, steel frames and girders raised buildings to 30 stories or more. New York City's triangular flat iron building used the new technology to project an angular yet remarkably delicate elegance. In Chicago, Daniel Burnham's Reliance Building in 1890 made such heavy use of new plate glass windows that contemporaries called it a glass tower 15 stories high. It was no accident that many of the new skyscrapers arose in Chicago. The city had burned nearly to the ground in 1871. The Chicago School of Architects helped to rebuild it. The young maverick Lewis H. Sullivan promised a new urban profile in which the skyscraper would be every inch a proud and soaring thing. And the Wainwright Building, 1890 in St. Louis, and the Carson, Pyrie, and Scott Department Score, Store, sorry, 1889 to 1904, it was completed in Chicago. Sullivan produced towering structures that symbolized the modern industrial city. Far below the skyscrapers lay the slums and tenements of the inner city. In cramped rooms and sunless hallways along narrow alleys and in flooded basements lived the city poor. They often worked there too. In sweater shops, as many as 18 people labored and slept in foul two-room flats. Slum dwellers usually lived on poor diets that left them vulnerable to epidemics. Cholera, typhoid, and an outbreak of yellow fever in Memphis in the 1870s killed tens of thousands. Tuberculosis was deadlier still. Slum children, all city children, were most vulnerable to such diseases. Almost a quarter of the children born in American cities in 1890 never lived to see their first birthday. The installation of new sewage and water purification systems helped. The modern flush toilet came into use only after the turn of the century 
Until then, people had relied on water closets and communal privies, some of which catered to as many as 800. All too often, cities dumped waste into old private vaults or rivers used for drinking water. Slum housing was often more dangerous than the water. The tubercle bacillus flourished in musty windowless tenements. In 1879, New York enacted a new housing law requiring a window in all bedrooms of new apartment buildings. Architect James E. Ware won a competition with a creative design that contained an indentation on both sides of the building. When two tenements abutted, the indentations formed a narrow shaft for error in light that led to the nickname Dumbbell Tenement. From above, the buildings resembled giant dumbbells and packed up to 16 families on a floor. Originally hailed as an innovation, Ware's Dumbbell Tenement spread through such cities as Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Boston like a scab, said an unhappy reformer. The air shafts became giant silos for trash, which blocked what little light had entered and worse still, carried fires from one story to the next. When the New York Housing Commission met in 1900, it concluded that conditions were worse than when reformers had started 30 year, 33 years before. Every new arrival to the city brought dreams and altogether too many needs. Schools and houses had to be built, streets paved, garbage collected, sewers dug, fires fought, utility lines laid, etc. Running the city, city became a full-time job, and a new breed of pol full-time politician rose to the task. So too did a new breed of reformer, determined to help the needy cope with the ravages of urban life. The need for change was clear. Many city charters dating from the 18th century included a paralyzing system of checks and balances. Mayors vetoed city councils, councils ignored mayors, jealous state legislatures allowed cities only the most limited and unpopular taxes, like those on property. At the same time, city governments were often decentralized, fragmented, scattered branches at odds with each other. Each branch was a tiny kingdom with its own regulations and taxing authority. As immigrants and rural Newcomers flocked to factories and tenements. The structures of urban government strained to adapt. Enter the party bosses. So cities were so decentralized that they could not provide the leadership required to run them. Boss rule supplied the centralization, authority, and services needed. Bosses ruled through the political machine which is a hierarchical political organization developed in the 19th century that controlled the activities of a political party and was usually headed by a political boss, a party boss. Often, as with New York City's Tammany Hall, machines dated back to the late 18th and early 19th centuries. They began as fraternal and charitable organizations. Over the years, they became centers of political power. In New York, the machine was Democratic. In Philadelphia, Republican. Machines could even be found in rural areas, such as Duval County, Texas, where the Spanish-speaking Anglo boss, Archie Parr, molded a powerful alliance with Mexican-American landowners. In an age of enterprise, the boss operated his political machine like a corporation. His office might be a saloon, a funeral home, or, like that of New York's George Washington Plunkett, a shoeshine stand. His managers were party activists, connected in a corporate-like chain of command. Local committeemen reported to district captains, captains to district leaders, district leaders to the boss or bosses who directed the machine. The goods and services of the machine were basics. A Christmas turkey, a load of coal for the winter, jobs for the unemployed, English language classes for recent immigrants. Bosses sponsored fun too. 
sports teams, glee clubs, balls, and barbecues. In return, citizens express their gratitude at the ballot box by voting to keep bosses and their machines in power. Sometimes the votes of the grateful were not enough. Bosses, bosses marshaled the graveyard vote by drawing names from tombstones to pad lists of registered voters. They hired repeaters to vote under the phony names. Reformers introduced the Australian or secret ballot in the 1880s to prevent fraud. Bosses pulled the Tasmanian Dodge by pre-marking ballots for voters. Failing that, they dumped whole ballot boxes into the river or used hired thugs to scare unpersuaded voters away from the polls. Why did bosses go to such lengths? Some simply loved the game of politics. More often, bosses loved money and power. Their success was limited by, only by their ingenuity or the occasional victory of an outraged reformer. The record for brassiness must go to boss William Tweed. During his reign in the 1860s and 1870s, Tweed swindled New York City out of a fortune. His masterpiece of graft was a chunky three-story courthouse in Lower Manhattan, originally budgeted at $250,000. When Tweed was through, the city had spent more than $13 million, over 60% of which lined the pockets of Tweed and his cronies. Tweed died in prison, but with such profits to be made, it was small wonder that bosses nearly matched their emperors of Rome as builders. In their fashion, bosses played a vital role in the industrial city. Rising from the bottom ranks, they guided immigrants into American life and helped some of the underprivileged up from poverty. They changed the urban landscape with a massive construction program. They modernized city government by uniting it and making it perform. Choosing the aldermen, municipal judges, mayors, and administrative officials, bosses exerted new control to provide the contracts and franchises to run cities. Such accomplishments fostered the notion that government could be called on to help the needy. The welfare state, as yet unnamed and still decades away, had roots here. The toll was often outrageous. Inflated taxes, extorted revenue, unpunished vice, and crime were only the most obvious costs. Unsafe working and unhealthy living conditions often cost lives. A woman whose family enjoyed a boss's Christmas turkey might be widowed by an accident to her husband in a sweatshop kept open by timely bribes to the local political club. Filthy buildings might claim her children's lives as corrupt inspectors ignored serious violations. Buying votes and selling favors, bosses turned democracy into a petty business. Urban blight and the condition of the poor inspired social as well as political activism, especially within churches. Not all of it was constructive. The popular Congregationalist minister, Josiah Strong, concluded that the city was a menace to society. Along with ancient, anxious economists and social workers, he blamed everything from corruption to unemployment on immigrant city dwellers and urged restricting their entry. In the 1880s and 1890s, two depressions sharpened these anxieties. Nativism, a defensive and fearful nationalism, peaked as want ignited prejudice. Organizations such as the New Immigration Restriction League attacked Catholics and foreigners. Already the victims of racial prejudice, the Chinese were easy targets. In 1882, Congress enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act, banning the entry of Chinese laborers, stranding a mostly male Chinese population in the United States. It was the first time race was employed to exclude people from entry and represented a fateful step in the drive to restrict immigration. To bridge the gap between the middle class and the poor, some clergy took their missions to the slums. Beginning in 1870, Dwight Lyman Moody, a 300-pound former shoe salesman, won armies of lowly converts with revivals in Boston, Chicago, and other cities. 
Evangelists helped to found American branches of the British-born Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, and Salvation Army. A small group of ministers rejected the traditional notion that weak character explains sin and that society would be perfected only as individual senators were converted. They spread a new social gospel that focused on improving the conditions of society to save individuals. In Applied Christianity, 1886, the influential Washington Gladden preached that the church must be responsible for correcting social injustices, including dangerous working conditions and unfair labor practices. Houses of worship, such as William Rainford St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City, became centers of social activity with boy cl- boys clubs, gymnasiums, libraries, glee clubs, and industrial training programs. Church-sponsored programs sometimes repelled the immigrant poor, especially when they saw them as thinly disguised missionary efforts. Immigrants and other slum dwellers were more receptive to a bold experiment called the Settlement House. Situated in the worst slums, often in renovated old houses, these early community centers were run by middle-class women and men to help the poor and foreign-born. At the turn of the century, there were more than 100 of them, the most famous being Jane Addams's Whole House in Chicago. In 1898, the Catholic Church sponsored its first settlement house in New York City, and in 1900, Bronson House opened its doors to the Latino community in Los Angeles. Higher purposes inspired settlement workers who actually lived in the settlement houses. They left comfortable middle-class homes and dedicated themselves to sacrifice and service. They aimed to teach immigrants American ways and to create a community spirit of right living through social relations. Immigrants were also encouraged to preserve their heritages through festivals, parades, and museums. Like political bosses, settlement reformers furnished help, from day nurseries to English language and cooking classes to playgrounds and libraries. Armed with statistics and personal experiences, they also lobbied for social legislation to improve housing, women's working conditions, and public schools. So the first thing immigrants were likely to see when they pulled into port was a city. Perhaps it was Boston or New York City, Galveston, Texas, where an overflow of Jewish immigrants were directed beginning in 1907. Most immigrants, exhausted physically and financially, settled in cities. Cities developed a well-defined mosaic of ethnic communities since immigrants clustered together usually on the basis of their villages or provinces. But these neighborhoods were in constant flux. As many as half the residents moved every 10 years, often because better paying jobs and more members of the family working. So ethnic communities served as havens from the strangeness of American society and springboards to a new life. From the moment they stepped off the boat, newcomers felt pressed to learn English, don American clothes, and drop their greenhorn ways. Yet in their neighborhoods, they also found comrades who spoke their language theaters that performed their plays and music, restaurants that served their food. Foreign language newspapers reported events from both the old world and the new in a tongue that first-generation immigrants could understand. Meanwhile, immigrant aid societies furnished assistance with housing and jobs and sponsored baseball teams, insurance programs, and English language classes. Houses of worship were always at the center of immigrant life. They often cater to the practices of individual towns or provinces. Occasionally, they changed their ways under the cultural pressures of American life. The Irish dominated the American Catholic Church, and other immigrants formed new churches with priests from their homelands. Eastern European Jews began to break the old law against men sitting next to their wives and daughters in synagogues, 
The Orthodox churches of Armenians, Syrians, Romanians, and Serbians gradually lost their national identifications. Where immigrants came from often influenced their choice of jobs. Because Chinese men did not scorn washing, washing or ironing, more than 7,500 of them could be found in San Francisco laundries by 1880. Sewing ladies' garments seemed unmanly to many native-born Americans, but not to Russian and Italian tailors. Slavs, who valued steady income over education, often pulled their children from school and sent them to work, and worked themselves in the mines for better pay than in the factories. On the whole, immigrants married later and had more children than did the native-born. Greeks and Eastern European Jews pre-arranged marriages according to tradition. They imported picture brides, betrothed by mail with a photograph. After marriage, men ruled the household, but women managed it. Although child-rearing practices varied, immigrants resisted the relative permissiveness of American parents. Youngsters were expected to contribute like little adults to the welfare of the family. In these family economies of working-class immigrants, key decisions over whether and whom to marry, over work and education, over whether to leave home, were made on a daily basis of collective rather than individual needs. But customs differed among the different immigrant groups. While many valued the ideal of women staying home, financial reality often meant that women worked outside as well as inside the home. Italian women were more likely to stay home, taking in borders or doing sewing, laundry, and other forms of piecework to earn money. Jewish women could often be found working alongside their husbands in a family-owned business. Though immigrant boys were more likely to be employed outside the home than girls, some daughters went to work at an early age so sons could continue their education. For other immigrant families, education for daughters was seen as the only path to well-paying jobs. Among still others, it was customary for one daughter to remain unmarried so she could care for younger siblings or aged parents. The Chinese were an exception to the pattern. The ban on the immigration of Chinese laborers in the 1880s have frozen the gender ratio of Chinese communities into a curious imbalance. Like other immigrants, most Chinese newcomers have been single men. In the wake of the ban, those in the United States could not bring over their wives and families. Nor by law in 13 states could they marry white Americans. With few women, Chinese communities suffer from high rates of prostitution, large numbers of gangs, and secret societies, low birth totals, etc. When the San Francisco earthquake and fire destroyed birth records in 1906, resourceful Chinese immigrants created paper sons and less often paper daughters by forging birth certificates and claiming their China-born children as American citizens. Caught between past and present, pressed to adopt American ways, Immigrants nonetheless clung to tradition and assimilated slowly. Their children adjusted more quickly. They soon spoke English like natives, married whomever they pleased, and worked their way out of old neighborhoods. Rapid as it was for many children, this process of assimilation was not always easy. Children often faced heart-rending clashes with parents and rejection from peers. Life for the urban middle class revolved around home and family. By the turn of the century, just over a third of middle-class urbanites owned their home. Often two or three stories made of brick or brownstone, these houses were a measure of social standing. The plush furniture, heavy drapes, antiques, and curios, they all signaled the status and refinement of their owners. Such homes, usually on their own lot, also served as havens to protect and nourish the family. 
17th century notions of children as inherently sinful had given way to modern theories about the shaping influence of the environment. Calm and orderly households with nurturing mothers would launch children on the right course. A woman was judged by the state of her home. The typical homemaker prepared elaborate meals, cleaned, laundered, and sewed. Each task took time. Baking a loaf of bread required nearly 24 hours, and in 1894, five loaves were still made at home. New labor-saving technologies such as indoor plumbing, washing machines, vacuums, and stoves often made women's lives harder and housework more time-consuming by raising the standards of cleanliness and expectations for more elaborate meals. Perhaps 25% of urban households had live-in servants to help with the work. They were all on call about 100 hours a week, were off but one evening and part of Sunday, and averaged 2 to $5 a week in salary. By the 1890s, a wealth of new consumer products eased the burdens of housework. Brand names trumpeted a new age of commercially prepared food. Campbell's Soup, Quaker Oats, Pillsbury Flour, Jell-O, and Cracker Jacks, to name a few. New appliances such as self-working washers, offered mechanical assistance, but shredded shirts and aching arms testified to how far short mechanization still fell. Toward the end of the century, Saturday became less of a workday and more of a family day. Sunday mornings remained a time for church, still an important center of family life. Afternoons had a secular flavor. There were shopping trips, city stores often stayed open, Visits to lakes, zoos, and amusement parks usually built at the end of trolley lines to attract more riders. Outside institutions, fraternal organizations, uplift groups, athletic teams, church groups were all becoming part of middle-class urban family life. Middle-class life reflected a very rigid social code called Victorianism, named for Britain's long-reigning Queen Victoria. It emerged in the 1830s and 40s as part of an effort to tame the turbulent urban industrial society that was developing in Europe at the time. Victorianism dictated that personal conduct be based on orderly behavior and disciplined moralism. It stressed sobriety, industriousness, self-control, and sexual modesty, and it taught that demeanor, particularly proper manners, was the backbone of society. According to its sexual precepts, women were pure vessels devoid of carnal desire, Their job was to control the lower natures of their husbands by withholding sex except for procreation. The values of the Victorians migrated across the Atlantic. In the United States, even women's fashions mirrored them. Strenuously laced corsets pushed breasts up, stomachs in, and rear ends out. The resulting wasp-like figure accentuated the breasts and the hips, promoting the image of women as childbearers. Ankle-length skirts were draped over bustles, hoops, and petticoats to make hips look even larger and suggest fertility. Such elegant dress set off middle and upper-class women from those below, whose plain clothes signaled lives of drudgery and want. When working-class Americans failed to follow Victorian cues, reformers helped them pursue virtue. In 1879, Frances Willard, fearing the ill effects of alcohol on the family, became the second president of the newly formed Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, that was founded in 1874. Under her leadership, the WCTU worked relentlessly to stamp out alcohol and promote sexual purity and other middle-class virtues. By the turn of the century, it was the largest women's organization in the country with 500,000 members. Initially, the WCTU focused on temperance, 
the movement, which begun in the 1820s, to stamp out the sale of alcoholic beverages and to end drunkenness. For these women, the campaign seemed a way not merely to reform society, but to protect their homes and families from abuse at the hands of drunken husbands and fathers. And in attacking the saloon, Frances Willard also sought to spread democracy by storming these all-male bastions where political bosses conducted so much political business and where women were barred from entry. Soon, under the slogan, Do Everything, the WCTU was also promoting women's suffrage, prison reform, better working conditions, and an end to prostitution. Just as important, it offered talented, committed women an opportunity to move out of their homes in the churches and into the public arena of lobbying and politics. Anthony Comstock crusaded with equal vigor against what he saw as moral pollution, ranging from pornography and gambling to the use of nude art models. In 1873, President Ulysses S. Grant signaled the so-called Comstock Law, a statute banning from the males all materials designed to incite lust. Two days later, Comstock went to work as a special agent for the post office. In his 41-year career, he claimed to have made more than 3,000 arrests and destroyed 160 tons of vice-ridden books and photographs. Victorian crusaders like Comstock were not simply missionaries of a stuffy morality. They were apostles of a middle-class creed of social control, responding to an increasing incidence of alcoholism, venereal disease, gambling debts, prostitution, and unwanted pregnancies. No doubt they overacted in warning that the sorry. <laughs> no doubt they overreacted in warning that the road to ruin lay behind the door of every saloon, gambling parlor, or bedroom. Yet the new urban environment did reflect the disorder of a rapidly industrializing society. The insistence with which moralists warned against impropriety suggests that many people did not heed their advice. Three quarters of the women surveyed during the turn of the century reported that they enjoyed sex. The growing variety of contraceptives, including spermicidal douches, sheaths made from animal intestines, rubber condoms, and forerunners of the diaphragm, testified to the desire for pregnancy-free intercourse. Abortion, too, was available. According to one estimate, a third of all pregnancies were aborted, usually with the aid of a midwife. By the 1880s, abortion had been made illegal in most states following the first anti-abortion statute in England in 1803. Despite Victorian marriage manuals, middle-class Americans became more conscious of sexuality as an emotional dimension of a satisfying union. A few bold men and women challenged conventions of gender and propriety. Victoria Woodhull, publisher of Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly, divorced her husband, ran for president in 1872 on the Equal Rights Party ticket, and pressed the case for sexual freedom. Now, Woodhull made a strong public case for sexual freedom, but in private, however, she adhered to strict monogamy and romantic love. The same cosmopolitan conditions that provided protection for Woodhull's unorthodox beliefs also made possible the outgrowth of communities of homosexual men and women. Earlier in the century, Americans had idealized romantic friendships among members of the same sex, without necessarily attributing to them sexual overtones. But for many friendships with an explicitly sexual dimension, the anonymity of large cities provided new meeting grounds. 
single factory workers and clerks living on their own in furnished tenement rooms rather than with their families in small towns and on farms were freer to be themselves and to seek others who shared their sexual orientation. Homosexual men and women began forming social networks on the streets where they regularly met, at specific restaurants and clubs, which, to avoid controversy, sometimes passed themselves off as athletic associations or chess clubs. Only toward the end of the century did physicians begin to notice homosexual behavior, usually to condemn it as a disease or an inherited infirmity. Not until the turn of the century did the term homosexual even come into existence. Certainly homosexual love was not new, but for the first time in the United States, the conditions of urban life allowed gays and lesbians to define themselves in terms of a larger, self-aware community, even if they were stoutly condemned by the prevailing standards of morality. The corrupting influence of city life on manhood troubled some onlookers as much as political or moral corruption distressed reformers. The components of traditional manliness, physical vigor, honor and integrity, courage and independence seemed under assault by life in the industrial city. White middle and upper class men who found themselves working at desks and living in cushy comfort appeared particularly at risk. As early as the 1850s, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., father of the famous Supreme Court Justice, lamented that such a set of stiff-jointed, soft-muscled, paste-complexioned youth as we can boast in our Atlantic cities, never before sprang from the loins of Anglo-Saxon lineage. The dangers of this decline in Anglo-Saxon manliness courted catastrophe, according to anxious observers. Soft, listless white men lacked vitality, but also the manly discipline and character that came from living what the Theodore Roosevelt called the strenuous life of action and struggle. Debased by the steamy pursuit of business, Roosevelt warned, such weaklings left the nation trembling on the brink of doom, its future imperiled by laziness, timidity, and dishonesty. The virile qualities essential for achievement and leadership would vanish. Roosevelt, frail and asthmatic as a boy, turned himself into a strapping man through back-breaking workouts. He commanded desk-bound civilized white men to follow his lead, even to reinvigorate their intellects with the barbarian virtues of physical strength he saw in darker-hued primitives. Gender and race were thus being blended into a heady brew of white supremacy. A frenzy of fitness spread across the nation, bicycling, rowing, boxing, and what one historian called a college cult of sports, promised to return middle and upper class men to vigorous and unsullied manhood. Prussian bodybuilder Eugene Soundo ignited a weightlifting craze when he toured the country in the 1890s with feats of strength and poses he dubbed muscle display performances. In a show of manly courage, a young Roosevelt lit out for the Dakota Badlands. Writer Richard Harding Davis for Cuba in the middle of the Spanish-American War and explorers Robert Peary and Matthew Henson for the North Pole in 1898. Exploration and adventure became exercises in undaunted manliness. So those at the bottom and in the middle of city life found in public education one key to success. Although the campaign for public education began in the Jacksonian era, it didn't really make much headway until after the Civil War when industrial cities began to mushroom. As late as 1870, half the children in the country received no formal education and one in five American 14-year-olds could not read. Between 1870 and 1900, an educational awakening occurred. As more and more businesses required workers who could read, write, and tally numbers, attendance in public schools more than doubled. 
The length of the school term rose from 132 to 144 days. Illiteracy fell by half. By the turn of the century, nearly all the states outside the South had enacted mandatory education laws. Almost three of every four school-aged children were enrolled. Even so, the average American adult still attended school for only about five years, and less than 10% of those eligible continued beyond the eighth grade. The average school day started early, but by noon, most girls were released under the assumption that they needed less formal education than boys did. Curricula stressed the fundamentals of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Courses in manual training, science, and physical education were added as the demand for technical knowledge grew and opportunities to exercise shrank. Students learned by memorization, sitting in silent study with hands clasped or standing erect while they repeated phrases and sums. Few schools encourage creative thinking. In an age of industrialization, massive immigration, and rapid change, schools taught conformity and values as much as facts and figures. Teachers acted as drill masters, shaping their charges for the sake of society. As much as anyone, urban middle-class young women profited from education. Liberated from household chores, many attended school and some went on to high school. They walked city streets, met their peers beyond the watchful eyes of parents, and extended childhood into the new intermediate stage of adolescence. Through education, prim and sheltered young ladies became schoolgirls with newfound freedom to be who and what they wanted. As Reconstruction faded, so did the impressive start made in black education. Most of the first generation of former slaves had been illiterate. So eager were they to learn that by the end of the century, more than half of all African Americans, over 14, could read. But discrimination soon took its toll. For nearly 100 years after the Civil War, the doctrine of separate but equal, upheld by the Supreme Court in the 1896 case Plessy v. Ferguson, kept black and white students apart, but scarcely equal. By 1882, public schools in a half-dozen southern states were racially separate or segregated by law, the rest by practice. Black schools were underfunded and ill-equipped and served dirt-poor communities and families whose family every family member had to work. Like African Americans, immigrants saw education as a way of getting ahead. Some educators saw it as a means of Americanizing newcomers. They assumed that immigrants and native-born children would learn the same lessons in the same language and turn out the same way. Only toward the end of the 1800s, as immigration mounted, did eastern cities begin to offer night classes that taught English, along with civics lessons for foreigners. When public education proved inadequate, immigrants established their own schools. Catholics, for example, started an elaborate expansion of their parochial schools in 1884. By the 1880s, educational reforms were helping schools respond to the needs of an urban society. Opened first in St. Louis in 1873, American versions of innovative German kindergartens put four- to six-year-olds in orderly classrooms while parents went off to work. Normal schools multiplied to provide teachers with more professional training, which these were schools that trained teachers usually for two years and mostly for teaching in the elementary grades. And in the new industrial age, Science and manual training supplemented more conventional subjects in order to supply industry with educated workers. So colleges served the urban industrial society too, not by controlling mass habits, but by providing leaders and managers. Early in the 19th century, most Americans had regarded higher learning as unmanly and irrelevant. The few who sought it often preferred the superior universities of Europe to those in the United States. As American society grew more organized, mechanized, and complex, the need for professional, technical, and literary schools brought greater respect for college education. 
the Morrill Act of 1862 generated a dozen new state colleges and universities, eight mechanical and agricultural colleges, and six black colleges. Private charity added more. Railroad barons such as Johns Hopkins and Leland Stanford used parts of their fortunes to found colleges named after them. Hopkins was established in 1873, Stanford in 1890. The number of colleges and universities nearly doubled between 1870 and 1910, though less than 5% of college-age Americans enrolled in them. A practical impulse inspired the founding of several black colleges. In the late 19th century, few institutions mixed races. Church groups and private foundations such as the Peabody and Slater Funds, supported by white donors from the North, underwrote black colleges after Reconstruction. By 1900, a total of 700 black students were enrolled. About 2,000 had graduated. Through hard work and persistence, some even received degrees from institutions reserved for whites. In keeping with the new emphasis on practical learning, professional schools multiplied to provide training beyond a college degree. American universities adopted the German model, requiring young scholars to perform research as part of their education. The number of law and medical schools more than doubled between 1870 and 1900. Medical students almost tripled. 10% of them were women, though their numbers shrank as the medical profession became more organized and exclusive. Professionals of all kinds in law, medicine, engineering, business, academics swelled the ranks of the middle class. Slowly, they were becoming a new force in urban America, replacing the ministers and gentlemen freeholders of an earlier day as community leaders. Before the Civil War, women could only attend three private colleges. After the war, they had new ones all their own, including Smith in 1871, Wellesley 1875, and Bryn Mawr in 1885. Such all-women schools, with their mostly female faculties and administrators, deepened an emerging sense of membership in a special community of women. Many land-grant car colleges chartered to serve all people also admitted women. By 1910, some 40% of college students were women, almost double the 1870 figure. Only one college in five refused to accept women. Potent myths of gender continued to plague women in college. Women's colleges therefore included a program of physical activity to keep students healthy. Dr. Edward Clark of the Harvard Medical School told thousands of students in sex and education in 1873 the rigors of a college education could lead to the weaker sex to physical or mental collapse, infertility, and early death. Many offered an array of courses in domestic science, cooking, sewing, and other skills to counter the claim that higher education would be of no value to women. College students, together with office workers and female athletes, became role models for ambitious young women. These new women, impatient with custom, cast off Victorian restrictions. Fewer of them married, and perhaps more, 25%, were self-supporting. They shed their corsets and bustled and donned lighter, more comfortable clothing, such as, such as shirt-waist blouses, styled after men's shirts, and lower-heeled shoes. And they showed that women could move beyond the domestic sphere of home and family. The city spawned a new material culture built on consumption. As standards of living rose, American industries began providing ready-made clothing to replace garments that had once been made at home. Similarly, food and furniture were mass-produced in greater quantities. The city became a giant market for these goods, the place where new patterns of mass consumption took hold. Radiating outward to rural areas, this urban consumer culture helped to level American society. Increasingly, city businesses sold the same goods to farmer and clerk, rich and poor, native-born and immigrant. 
well-made inexpensive merchandise in standard sizes and shapes found outlets in new palaces of consumption known as department stores, so-called because they displayed their goods in separate sections or departments. Unlike the small exclusive shops of Europe, department stores were palatial, public, and filled with inviting displays of furniture, housewares, and clothing. The French writer Emile Zola claimed that department stores democratize luxury. Anyone could enter free of charge, handle the most elegant and expensive goods, and buy whatever was affordable. When consumers found goods too pricey, department stores pioneered layaway plans with deferred payments. Department stores also educated people by showing them what proper families owned and the correct names for such things as women's wear and parlor furniture. In all these ways, they socialized consumers into their need for products of all kinds. Chain stores, a term coined in America, spread the culture of consumption without frills. They cater to the working class who could not afford department stores and operated on a cash and carry basis. Owners kept their costs down by buying in volume to fill the small stores and growing neighborhood chains. Founded in 1859, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, later to become A&P Supermarkets, was the first of the chain stores. By 1876, its 76 branch stores had added groceries to the original line of teas. Far from department and chain stores, rural Americans joined the community of consumers by mail. In 1872, Aaron Montgomery Ward was sent his first price sheet to farmers from a livery stable loft in Chicago. Ward avoided the intermediaries and promised savings of 40% on fans, needles, trunks, harnesses, and scores of other goods available to city dwellers. By 1884, his catalog boasted 10,000 items, each illustrated by a lavish woodcut. Similarly, Richard W. Sears and Alva C. Roebuck have built a $500 million mail order business by 1907. Schoolrooms had no encyclopedia. Schoolrooms, sorry, that had no encyclopedia used a Montgomery Ward or Sears catalog instead. When they asked the source of the Ten Commandments, one farm boy replied that they came from Sears, Roebuck, Countrywide mass consumption was producing a mass material culture. As mechanization gradually reduced the number of hours on the job, factory workers found themselves with more free time. So did the middle class with free weekends, evenings, and vacations. A new, stricter division between work and play developed in the more disciplined society of industrial America. City dwellers turned this new leisure time into a consumer item that often reflected differences in class, gender, and ethnicity. Sports, for example, have been a traditional form of recreation for the rich. They continued to play polo, golf, and the newly imported English game of tennis. Croquet appealed to the middle class more than did polo, golf, and tennis. It required less skill and special equipment. Perhaps as important, it could be enjoyed in mixed company, like the new craze of bicycling. Bicycles evolved from unstable contraptions with large front wheels into safety bikes with equal-sized wheels, a dropped middle bar, pneumatic tires, and coaster brakes. On Sunday afternoons, city parks became crowded with cyclists, at least those wealthy enough to pay the $100 price tag on such bicycles. Women rode the new safety bikes too, although a special convention prohibited them from riding alone. But cycling broke down conventions too. It required looser garments, freeing women from corsets, and lady cyclists demonstrated that they were hardly too fragile for physical exertion. Organized spectator sports attracted crowds from every walk of life. Baseball overshadowed all others. 
For city dwellers with dull work, cramped quarters, and isolated lives, baseball offered the chance to join thousands of others for an exciting outdoor spectacle. The first professional teams appeared in 1869, and slowly the game evolved. Umpires began to call balls and strikes, the overhand replaced the underhand pitch, and fielders put on gloves. Teams from eight cities formed the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs in 1876, followed by the American League in 1901. League players were distinctly working class. At first, teams featured some black players. When African Americans were barred in the 1880s, black professionals formed their own team, the Cuban Giants of Long Island, New York, looking to play anyone they could in taking the name Cuban rather than Negro in hopes of being able to play white teams too. Horse racing, bicycle tournaments, and other forms of speed and violence helped to break the monotony, frustration, and routine of the industrial city. They also helped to address their crisis of manliness by allowing men to display their strength and courage, their masculinity, on the playing field rather than a battlefield. Perhaps the most violent sport of all, bare-knuckle prize fighting, was illegal in some states, but in others, it gave young men from the streets the chance to stand out from the crowd, win some cash, and prove how manly they were. Football gave the elite a similar opportunity. In 1869, without pads or helmets, Rutgers beat Princeton in the first intercollegiate football match. College football soon attracted crowds of 50,000 or more. Other forms of city entertainment also divided along lines of class. For the wealthy and upper middle class, there were symphonies, operas, and theater. Highbrow productions of Shakespearean plays catered to the aspirations of upwardly mobile Americans for culture and European refinement. Popular melodramas gave audiences the chance to ignore the ambiguities of modern life booing villains and cheering heroes. By 1900, people were bringing their entertainment home, snapping up some 3 million new phonograph records or recordings a year. Working men discovered a haven from the drudgery of factory, mill, and mine in the saloon. It was an all-male preserve, a working man's club, where one could drink and talk free from Victorian finger-wagging. Young working women found escape alone or with dates at dance halls and the new amusement parks with their mechanical thrill rides. In the all-black gaming houses and honky-tonks of St. Louis and New Orleans, the syncopated rhythms of African-American composer Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Brag from 1899 and other ragtime tunes heralded the coming of jazz. Seeing middle-class housewives with children as a potential source of new profits, resourceful theater owners cleaned up the body acts of saloons and music halls, required audiences to be well-mannered, and came up with a new form of variety show called vaudeville after the French slang Voix de Ville, Songs of the Town. For anyone, for anywhere from a dime to two dollars, a customer could enjoy up to nine acts of singers, jugglers, acrobats, magicians, trained animals, and comics. The mix of performers reflected the quickened tempo of urban life and diverse tastes of audi- urban audiences. Comedy teams often drew on the experience of immigrants using names such as The Sport and the Jew, The Two Funny Sauerkrauts. Ethnic comics diffused tensions with spoofs that exaggerated stereotypes and stressed the common foibles of all humanity. During its heyday from 1890 to 1920, vaudeville became a popular big business. Nearly one in five city dwellers went to a show once a week. As much as any form of entertainment, the traveling circus embodied the changes of the new urban industrial world. Moving outward from their city bases, circuses rode the new rail system across the country. After the first transcontinental tour in 1869, and with the advent of steamships crisscrossed the globe. The mammoth New York-based Barnum & Bailey Circus 
carried dozens of gilded show wagons, scores of animals, tons of equipment, and hundreds of performers, work hands, and animal tenders to the far away capitals of Europe and Asia. At home, the shows drew patrons from every class, ethnicity, and race, sometimes numbering in the tens of thousands. Circus electors erected huge big top tents with the factory-like precision of modern industry. And, like the city itself, circuses both supported and subverted social conventions. When owners reassured customers that their scantily clad dancers came from respectable families or their muscular lady acrobats prized the Victorian values of motherhood and domesticity, they winked slyly because they knew that the very appearance of these women, let alone their talents, defied the Victorian ideal of dainty and demure femininity. So just kind of in review here, Industrialization ignited the growth of cities, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Great Britain, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, became the world's first country with over half its people living in towns and cities by 1851. Fifty years later, London's population had more than doubled, from 2.7 million to 6.6 million. By 1914, on the eve of the First War, eight of every ten Britons lived in cities, as did six of ten Germans and nearly five of ten French. Just as European immigrants poured into cities across the United States, newcomers from Europe, Asia, and the Middle East flowed into South America, Australia, and the Caribbean. Before 1900, two of every three immigrating Italians booked passage not for the United States, but for Brazil or Argentina. Chinese immigrants harvested sugarcane in Cuba, built railroads and opened restaurants in Peru, and launched businesses in Trinidad. By 1920, Sao Paulo, the largest city in Brazil, was exploding with Asian immigrants and Brazil boasted the world's largest Japanese population outside Japan. The hubbub, the overcrowding, and the corruption of cities like Boss Plunkett's Manhattan were reflected elsewhere in the world. Before the arrival of mass transit, British urban workers were forced to live within walking distance of factories and dingy row houses beset by the overflow from privies and garbage in the streets. A deadly cholera epidemic in 1848 spurred a campaign to install iron pipes and drains to provide running water and sewers throughout major cities. About the same time, Paris underwent a radical renovation in which workers tore down the city's medieval fortress walls, widened major streets into boulevards, and set aside land for green parks. Borrowing innovations from the United States, Europeans adopted horse-drawn streetcars and later electric trolleys. With an intracity transportation network in place, the old walking cities of Europe, like those in the United States, added suburbs, partially easing the crush of earlier crowding. The world over, industrial cities transformed both the urban landscape and the daily lives of city dwellers. Critics damned the city's crime and corruption, defenders celebrated its vibrancy and diversity. No matter how they felt, Americans had to search for ways to make that new industrial order work. Hope you enjoyed this.